The passage for today's sermon is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed five denarii and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will he love more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Vanessa. Some of you might know that uh, I was born and spent my early life until I was 23 years old in the semi-remote mountains of the Philippines. Uh, My earliest years were spent uh, among, almost exclusively among the Igorots, and they were about seven tribes in the high mountains of Luzon. Uh, Theirs was my language, uh, theirs was my culture, in many ways still is. And while I had scores of many friends among the Igorots, I had one best friend, Benedict Sombrano. He was born the same year that I was born, and his house was less than a kilometer from my house. In fact, we could see each other's houses across the field, and we were kind of like twins, Uh, Everybody knew, if you wanted to know where Benedict was, 
uh, where is Shelton, and, and vice versa. And uh, our fr- deep friendship continues to this day. When I was studying this passage this week, it made me recall an incident that occurred between Benedict and myself when we were in our early 20s, maybe about 22 or 23. We had a mutual friend. I'm going to call her Corazon. And uh, we kind of grew up together. We were about the same age. And she had moved to a neighboring town called uh, La Trinidad, which was also the capital of our province. And we had heard that her life had taken a, a bad turn. She had married late in her teens and moved to La Trinidad. And not many years after their marriage, her husband began running around with other women. He began drinking. And so she was almost left alone to raise their newborn daughter. To try and make ends meet, she made a little store in front of their house where she could sell vegetables and fruits in order to try and make ends meet. So Dick and I decided, let's go visit Corazon and see if there's any way that we can help her. So we went to La Trinidad, and uh, we went to that little storefront, and she saw us, and she burst into tears and ran into her house. Uh, Dick and I turned to each other, and I was trying to recall. I should have asked him this week. One of us said to each other, Piman unay ni corazon, agsang sangit na mabayin unay isuna, gaputa asawana. That is, we should feel sorry for Corazon. She's crying and weeping because of her husband and because of the life that she now has. We turned to each other and we walked away. Now, that scenario may not make sense to us in Boise in 2022, but it made absolute cultural sense to us Then, all three of us knew what was going on at that point. And as we look at this event in the life of Jesus, I believe that it really only makes sense if we understand the first century cultural norms. So let's go to that scene. And we're able to do that if you love history. We're able to do that because there's so much history from first century Palestine that is seen in this passage. Let's look at the three main characters uh, briefly. Jesus. He's one of scores of first century Jewish men who is going around uh, saying uh, things like, I'm the anointed one. Uh, I'm uh, the promised one. The one that God in your sacred scriptures has been promising who's going to come and deliver you. Jesus wasn't the only one in the first century who went around saying that in Galilee and in Judea. Jesus was one of many. He wasn't much to look at. He didn't ride around on a horse. He didn't have a chariot. His disciples didn't carry him in a chair. He walked everywhere that he went. And his disciples, uh, minus Matthew, who was a collaborator with the Romans and was hated, he was a tax collector, his disciples, for the most part, were blue-collar workers. They broke their backs fishing 
or um, at, through agriculture. And uh, what was somewhat astonishing, if you read uh, his story, is that his primary patrons that helped support his ministry were, were women. But there was something a little bit different about Jesus than all these others. He went around saying that before Abraham was, I am, that I am God. He preached with authority, and he backed up his astonishing message with miracles that couldn't be explained away. He is a homeless, itinerant preacher, tired, walking up and down from Galilee to Judea. That's the first character. And then there is Simon, the Pharisee. Unlike Jesus, Simon was part of the cultural elite in the first century. He was a member of Israel's highest first century religious group, the Pharisees. Urbane, sophisticated, highly educated, wealthy. Simon was admired, if not envied, by 98% of the population because they couldn't afford his education and the social position that that education gave him. And then in this story, Simon does perhaps the strangest thing he has done in his life. The most outlandish, scandalous thing. One might even say embarrassing. Probably embarrassed his family. He invites this homeless man into his house to have dinner. In all the Bible... We only read one other time when a Pharisee stoops so low in their estimation to meet with Jesus, and that was Nicodemus. And he met Jesus at night. Bob Dylan has a song about this encounter with these words, Nicodemus came at night so he wouldn't be seen by men. Not Simon. Broad daylight in front of everybody, he invites Jesus into his home, to eat with him and his friends. If you look at verse 49, there are other people sitting around the table. Simon is taking a huge gamble here. When Jesus gets into the house, this is how the things unfolded. There's a round table, and the servants of Simon have put food on this table. There are pillows around the table, And those that are eating, they don't sit down. They actually lay down with their heads toward the table where they're going to eat and their feet behind them. It was very common in the first century that even if you were not invited to a meal like this, you were welcome to come in and observe what are they eating. And uh, even if you want to look in at the window and peer in on the conversation, that wouldn't go very well today, but that's the way they did things in the first century. Which brings us to the third and final character in this story, this nameless woman. Well, actually, Luke does identify her in verse number 37 as a woman of the city who was a sinner. That is very polite Greek for a local street-walking woman whose body is for sale. In Simon's house, this woman, with all the others who are observing what's going on, walks around the wall until she gets to Jesus 
And she stands, if you look at the verse 37, she stands there behind Jesus. And probably the first indication that Jesus notes that something strange is going on is he starts to feel drops of water on his feet. And he turns around and he sees a woman standing there. She undoes her hair. She bends down. She begins kissing Jesus' feet, takes an alabaster box, which is something very small, usually worn around the neck, opens it up, and anoints Jesus' feet with that perfume. That's the setting. I want to just mention three things that we can learn from this setting. First of all, in the first century, when you invite somebody into your house for a meal, you are inviting them into a relationship. Simon did this, even though all of his colleagues were violently opposed to this homeless preacher. But here's the lesson that I want us to get. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Inviting Jesus into your house is not enough. Inviting Jesus into your life is not enough. Simon thought he was earning points with Jesus for inviting him. But what becomes very clear in this story is the reason Simon invites Jesus to a meal is he is extremely curious and he intellectually wants to spar with Jesus. Like so many religious people back then and today, they want to argue the fine points of doctrine and theology. Those, religion, those aren't religions with tears. I fear sometimes if we would have Jesus into our house based on what we read and listen to and watch, we would want to talk about politics. We would want to talk about philosophy and sexuality, eschatology, epistemology, apologetics. And like Simon, even if Jesus would be in the room with us, he would be 10 million miles away from us. Compare Simon's response to Jesus with the woman's. She drops to her knees in a most personal way. Luke, this doctor who writes this book, says that he, she is touching Jesus, full of tears and worship. She is just overwhelmed with emotion being in the presence of Jesus. And notice Simon's response in verse 39. It's very analytical, critical, a diagnostic internal response. Well, I thought this man might be a prophet, but I was wrong. If he knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let her touch him. I'm embarrassed for him. I'm embarrassed for Jesus I hoped he would be some kind of prophet. Now I just need to get him out of my house before this gets even more embarrassing for everyone. And he says to Jesus in his mind, I was wrong about you because you're not living up to my idea of what a man of God really should be. So Jesus' response to Simon's secret thoughts is to say to Simon, I've got something to tell you, Simon. And I want to put that story in 2022 language. There are two men. One man owes the bank $500,000. The other owes the bank $50. And the bank owner comes and says, if you don't pay for this 
you will lose your house tomorrow. Back in the first century, if you can't pay, you're going to be thrown into prison and your family's going to be thrown into prison. And so he, but the next day the banker comes, I don't know if this has happened to you, a banker comes to you the next morning and says to the man who owns 500000 forget it, it's paid for, you get to keep your house. And then he goes to the $50 person and says, forget about it. I'm canceling your debt. You get to keep your house. And he says, Simon, who, who do you think would be happier? You want to be very analytical about me? Well, here's a seminar for you. Harvard Business School. Who do you think is going to be happier? And Simon says, well, I suppose the one that owed $500,000. He says, you're right. But here's the second thing to remember in our lesson today. It's really easy to miss, but I think it's actually the key to all of these verses. And it's only five words, and I bet we passed over it without really thinking about it. It's in verse number 42, the first five words. When they could not pay. Both of the debtors in this story were in the same boat. Both of them could not pay. They were both going to lose their homes. Here's perhaps an earthy way to understand this, what Jesus meant by this, and what he wants Simon to see here. Let me take two people again. Two sisters. One is sleeping at night, and in the middle of the night, a spider comes up into the bed and bites the sister. And it's such a poisonous spider that she dies within seconds. And the next morning, they find her cold body. They can't even see where she's been bitten, but but that poisonous spider has bitten her. Her other sister at this time is in Africa, and she's on a safari, and unfortunately, she is attacked by multiple lions who tear her body apart, her limbs apart, take her arm away, her head away. Which one of those sisters is more dead? That's what Jesus is asking Simon, and he's asking us. One might look prettier than the other, but neither of them are alive. And he says to Simon, and perhaps people like us, Simon, you think that you have it together, don't you? You don't walk the streets at night. You're, you're not selling your body. You keep the rules. You pay your bills. You don't use a lot of foul language. You may even eat healthy. You might avoid Pepsi and Coca-Cola. But you're still back in verse number 42. You can't pay. How many of us have been trying almost all of our lives to be accepted by God, by the things that we do, by our performance, by thinking God loves me now. I'm obeying my parents. God really loves me now. I give 10%. God loves me now. Verse number 42, he says, no, 
We can't pay. We don't have the ability to pay our debt to God. You can live, and I can live 10 billion years, always trying to keep the rules. But we're as dead as those who forget the rules. This woman knew there's nothing I can do for my sins while Simon thought, well, I'm kind of doing God a favor here, bringing this homeless person in here. You don't do God favors. God invites us into his kingdom. We don't invite him into our kingdom. She gave everything to Jesus. Do you notice that she didn't care what people thought about her? Not only is she kissing Jesus' dirty feet. Now, he's walking around in, in sandals. Not only is she kissing his feet, she takes her hair down. In the first century, if you took your hair down as a woman, that was grounds for your husband to divorce you. She does it in public. She doesn't care what people think. That alabaster box, if you read first century history, prostitutes walked around with an alabaster box. And what it was, was it was the way to lure customers to you by putting it on, by wearing it so that you would smell good. She takes it and she gives it and pours it on Jesus, saying, everything that I am, my means to lure customers, my identity, my only means of survival, I am giving to you. I'm giving away my old life to you. And she hears this from Jesus. Woman, your sins are forgiven. Go and live a life of peace. Do you see what he, this woman also gains from Jesus? Jesus tells Simon, this woman is going to be able to love a great deal. The ability to love that she didn't have before, she's going to have that now. Which means this, the person who feels that they have been forgiven just a little can only love just a little. I tried not to make too many quotes in my sermon. I'm accused of having too many quotes. But here's something that Tim Keller said. Your, and get this, your love is a response to how deeply forgiven you feel yourself to be. How much you love is rooted in how much you think you have been forgiven. Your ability to love life, your ability to love your spouse, your ability to love and obey your parents, that is in proportion to how much have I been forgiven. If you see yourself forgiven, you'll be too humble to hold a grudge and too joyful to keep a grudge. Which brings us to our final point. And that is Jesus' indictment of Simon in verses 44 to 47. He says to Simon, Simon, look at this woman. You know, you didn't give me water when I came to your house to wash my feet. By the way, in first century cultural norms, that's what he should have done. There should have been a basin there, and he should have washed Jesus' feet. And uh, Simon probably thought, I don't have to do this for this homeless man with his dirty feet. He says, Simon, you didn't give me a kiss when I came in. Again, a cultural norm of the first century. Kiss on both cheeks. This woman hasn't stopped kissing me since she's bent down and washed my feet. And on your special guests, you anoint them with oil. 
But Simon didn't do that. And can you hear Simon saying this? I sure can. You wanted me to do all that to you? And if he would have asked Jesus the question, he would have said, yeah. And why? Because Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't want our Sunday mornings. He doesn't want you when people are watching you. He doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants all of you. And the truth is, we know what that means. We know the things that we need to give to Jesus. And why should we give them to Jesus? Why should we be like this woman? Because he is the only being that has never had a beginning and will never have an end. He's the only one who gives our lives meaning. Paul tells us, and by him all things were made in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were made through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he might be preeminent in everything. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the most beautiful and loving personal being. He loves justice and cares for the poor and the disenfranchised. He loves the immigrant. And all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because he gives the birds a song to sing every day. Because he tells the whales the paths that they are to follow in the seas. Because he tells the sun and the moon to stay in their place so that we have life. Because in his mathematical equations he created gravity that allows us to exist. Because he is making all things new. Because Paul tells us, therefore... He did not count equality with God something to hold on to, even though he was in the form of God. But he emptied himself, and he became a servant, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Simon, the person standing in front of you, is this person. The person who holds all things together by the word of his mouth. And when we get a glimpse of who this Jesus is, we will be like this woman. He won't play second fiddle in your life. He won't play second fiddle to anything in our lives. You see, a person like this, you can't be lukewarm with. You either fall down and worship him or you say, man, I can't wait to get you out of my house and out of my kingdom. We can't remain neutral over him. 
Let me close by reading a verse from a poem written by a woman in the 19th century who had a very, very hard life. She gave her kingdom to Jesus and wrote a great deal of poetry about him. She died of a broken body when she was 43 because she went around the world helping the poor. On June 3rd, coming up to the anniversary, June 3rd of 1879. But before she died, she wrote these verses. And I think she had this passage in mind. Can you hear it in this verse? Take my love. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At thy feet, thy treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever, always, only for thee. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, how beautiful are the feet of Jesus. We, like John the Baptist, would say we're not worthy to untie his sandals. We thank you that he came to this earth identified with us as a man, was obedient to the point of death on a cross so that he is now highly exalted. If there are any among us who have this detached faith that is just analytical and has no tears because of who Jesus is, Father, teach us in this story what it's like to be in the presence of Jesus. Thank you for his promise that anyone who calls on him, he will come in and sup with them and dwell in their lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.